0: 1st Samuel chapter 26. Let's go straight to the Lord in prayer. And let's talk about kind of where we are in time. Get our our head wrapped around where we are in this. Uh, Pray with me, would you please? Father God in heaven, I want to thank you for the privilege tonight of being able to open your word and expect you to do fantastic things. We expect this time to be perfectly spent, Lord, because you are the Lord of it. And we ask, Lord, for you to do amazing things amazing things so Father I pray that you would speak to every one of us open our ears and our hearts and our minds and let us hear you God I pray let us truly truly understand you and and hear your voice God in such a way Lord that, that we would understand your love for us and we would understand your call upon us we would understand what you require of us that we would understand God how amazing it is and what a gift it is to follow You. And Lord, we recognize that You lead us in places we would never go, but for results we could never attain. So Lord, we trust You as You lead us. Lead us through this text now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. I want you always to search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be... The final answer: Let the Bible be always that for which you test and hold all things true and false. Now we're roughly at about 1,000 BC, and that's 3,000 plus years ago, now, of course. And we're following the life of a young man named David. What we do know about David by second Samuel, the beginning of Second Samuel is that David will actually become king at age 30. He will ultimately rule in the south for a small period of time, seven and a half years. And then the remainder of the 40 he will do when he moves the whole thing, taking over the entire uh, 12 tribes and not just the two southern tribes. And, and, And so understand, somewhere before... First or Second Samuel one, when he when he starts gaining that Second Samuel one and two, when he when he gets the throne at thirty, we have this period of time between that and the time that David was called all the way back in First Samuel chapter fifteen and sixteen. And then the reason I say that is at that time we do know from the amount of brothers that he had, he was the youngest of eight and that of them, only three of them seem to be in the, in the army, and you have to be 21 or older to make it in the army, 20 or older to make it in the army, that puts us down, unless any of them are twins, that really puts them down at roughly about 15 years old. So that tells us somewhere in between the time when David takes on Goliath, probably 16 or 17 at that point, uh, and the time when he becomes king at Second Samuel, the beginning of that, is there's a 15-year period that we look at here that are the hardest years of his life up to that point. For the first 15 years, all we know about him is that he was someone who followed the sheep, that God took him from there, and he was the youngest brother of eight. His father's name was Jesse, or Yeshi, and he was from the tribe of Judah, born and raised in Bethlehem. Of course, that will play important as we get to Jesus, because his direct lineage of this David will be the greatest king that ever lived until Jesus steps on the throne and steps on, on earth. And, and understand, because of that, David had to go back when he was going to be taxed. He had to go back to the land of his ancestry, and that is why, David, why, why Jesus had to actually go and be born in Bethlehem. And that's what the prophets would tell us, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. It's actually one of the riddles, if you will, that God plays out in the Old Testament. Because he tells us that he had to be born in Bethlehem, but he had to be called out of Egypt, and he had to be called a Nazarite. I mean, that would be like saying of Bruno, for instance, that he had to be born in Portugal, but he had to be called out of Morocco. But while all of that's happening, he would actually be called a Greek. You know, that would be a weird thing, and certainly when you're talking about properties, that and in some cases were very much at war, like Egypt and Israel were. Uh, and, and so the reason I say that is, is that God puts all those pieces. We look back now when we see and go, of course, duh, Jesus was born in one place, but his family was from another, and of course he had to go to escape Herod's persecution and went down to Egypt. And the only reason I say that is, looking back, it's always easy to think you knew the answer, even though you really didn't. You know, I know people that when they watch episodes of something, they'll watch ahead or read the spoilers so they can look really smart, and they'll go, oh, I bet it's probably this, when they actually read the spoiler, and they, they know what it's going to be. Now, now in our story here, what that means is God takes, really, if you think about it, from these chapters, then, these, this, this season of David's life where, really, David's a fugitive. He's running for his life. He's Jason-born, where the men that he fought with The men that he trained in many of the cases, I would assume, were men that are now seeking his life. And David flees from Saul, the incumbent king who is supposed to step off the throne. He's been handed his P-45, he's been fired, and he is not willing to step off. And so Saul thinks that the only thing left to do, because he sees the imminent removal, the only thing that's left to do is to kill the competition. And you can see how God is setting us up for Jesus in that where there is an incumbent ruling religious ruling party that has really set themselves in their ways but has no interest in abrogating the throne that they think that they've created for themselves that Jesus rightly deserves. And as a result of that, when Jesus comes, they only have two choices, to step off or to remove the competition. And of course, Jesus will be murdered as a result of that. So in David's life, this is where we're at. And we're actually at a really, really, really important point and something very personal to each of us. Because in chapter 26, we are right before David's backslide. Now, you may not see it that way, perhaps, if you just read it quickly. but What you're going to find is by the next chapter, David is going to go and, and in essence, hand himself over to the perennial enemy of Israel, which is the Philistines, and actually offer to serve them. David, in essence, is going after, and he's going to just go, fine, forget it, and I'm just going to go. And the reason I say that is, as every one of you, I imagine at one point or another, myself included, have had these moments where the enemy sort of speaks at you and tries to get you to do the same thing. He gets you in that place where it's like, for whatever reason, you get to this place where you're like, man, I'm so tired of fighting this battle and working so hard at this. You know what? It would just be easier if I was in the world. And that happens right after this chapter, which teaches me that if I were to look at this chapter carefully, I could learn what it was at least that happened to David that would make him want to do that and then ask myself, hey, is this happening in my own heart? Because it really doesn't take much if you're willing to listen. And I want to warn you, and I don't want to give the enemy a lot of press, but he is the accuser of the brethren. And the moment you start to, in the moment you sit down to listen to him, he'll give you his whole performance, and it won't just end with the person that you think he has a right to accuse, because ultimately he'll wind up accusing God, and you'll listen to that, and then he'll accuse you, of you, and then you'll, re- by the time you're done, you're hitting everyone, including God and yourself, and it just started with somebody did something somewhere that you really felt you had a really good right to be angry about. Well, in the moment again, you start listening to that he's just going to go for it. David, in his escape out of Saul's grasp, had had twice, he had had spears chucked at him. That'll be kind of important for the text. He heads to Nob. Inadvertently, he'll know that he has had his hand in essence of killing the whole city as Saul will learn that David had gone there and then kill the whole city. And he'll head to his first cave, the cave of Adullam, where, by the way, he starts, he's challenged to pity himself But instead, his family shows up, 400 men show up that also have a problem with Saul. And then from there, he'll head to Kila. And once he heads to Kila, it's important to note, he'll go and rescue the the people of Kila, which is a walled city, from the Philistines. And then he'll have this another portrayal. Because they'll actually seek to turn him in. I mean, here, I mean, imagine what it would be like for David that he takes these band of raiders, 400 men, and they go rescue a city, and then that city grasses on you and just flips on you and says, yeah, there he is, come and get him. When you were the one who was, in essence, the lifeguard for these people in peril. But David never goes and flies off the handle and tries to kill him. He had already been betrayed by Saul in Saul's house, if you will. At least Saul, his son, was actually David's best friend, and one of Saul's daughters was actually David's wife. David will flee that betrayal, wind up in a place where Saul will wind up killing everyone, then he'll flee that to go and rescue a group of people that will betray him, and he'll flee that and end up in the second cave in En Gedi. And when he's there, Saul, in essence, Saul and Saul's men who are looking to kill David, Saul winds up in the cave that David and his men, at this point 600 of them, are hiding and Saul goes in there to go to the bathroom he goes in there to go to the toilet and David has an opportunity to kill him and he doesn't that would have been a very easy thing literally catch a man with his pants down but in that instead David says I can't do this I can't lift my hand against the Lord's anointed it's God's job to get to take care of this and then from that Saul will will leave the cave because why would you want to stay there after you've done that and David comes out of the cave and he says, what are you, Why are you trying to kill me? I mean, look, at I could have killed you, and clearly I didn't. Do you really think that I've got it in for you, Saul? Is that what you really think? I mean, if, if you think that I was trying to kill you, well, I had the prime opportunity right here and I didn't do it. For which then, unfortunately, you know, there's this moment that Saul almost seems like he has a moment of sobriety. And he says, and this is in 1 Samuel 24:17. he says to David, You are more righteous than I am for you have rewarded me with good whereas I have rewarded you with evil for you have shown me this day that you have dealt well with me for when the Lord delivered me into your hand you didn't kill me for if a man finds his enemy will he let him get away safely therefore may the Lord reward you for good for what you have done this day and now indeed I know that you shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand Saul has openly admitted that David really is the proper king and learn from that Saul seems to have a moment of sanity and he seems to have a moment of humility and a moment of honesty where he's willing to admit that David is the proper king but he doesn't repent. He has agreed with God that David's the right guy. He's agreed with God that he's not the right guy. He's agreed with God that David is not only the person that should be there but he's also more righteous than Saul has been. And that what Saul is doing is actually madness. Imagine if you sat with a friend and they were in a situation like this and they gave you all of that information. Would you not think you've made tremendous leaps and bounds that night? Yeah, you're right. My behavior is crazy. What am I thinking? I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I really going after that person? Or why am I really obsessing over this thing? I have no right to do that. You're right. I'm wrong. Jesus really needs to be Lord. And hear me on this. There's a radical difference between winning the soul and winning the argument. And when you get caught up in this place where you think it's an intellectual thing, and especially if you are an intellectual individual... You could start grabbing the trophy the moment they agree with you. It is amazing how we can have somebody there and not ask the fundamental question at that moment. Well then, are you ready to repent? Are you ready to make that change? Are you going to make that change? I've heard people preach the gospel in beautiful ways and never give a choice and that drives me mad. Well, they'll get to this point where they're like, Jesus died for your sins because you're a sinner, like we're all sinners, and he wants to make you a brand new creation, and, and all of your filth could be washed away at the cross. Jesus has done all of that for you. His death has taken all that you are and vanquished all of that guilt and shame and all the horror of the things you've thought, felt, done, and, and intended. And then he rose again to give you a brand new life. yeah, yeah. And then they'll move right on. I'm like, but where is that? Well, but the Bible says you've got to make a choice in that. And if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. Where is that place where we go, okay, now that I feel like I have you there and I believe that you're with me on this, let's make that choice together. Because otherwise we could just feel like we've got a bunch of nodders, but they're really kind of nodding off. Saul has made some tremendous confessions here. And yet in it, he'll say then, Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you won't cut off my descendants after me, nor will you destroy the name of my father's house when you become king. It's like, look it. Since I know you're going to be king and it's inevitable, I still need to look out for me. What Saul never does is let go of himself. And by the way, can I just say, much of Christianity can look a lot like that. Well, All we really want is for Jesus to serve whatever need we think we have at the moment, and we're really not willing to submit ourselves to his lordship. Well, that's where Saul was. And again, I remind you, this is David's second cave. He had the opportunity to kill him. Saul makes this confession. Saul says, okay, look, we're good. Because we're good, I'm going to go my way. You can go your way. We're good. So... Saul leaves. And with that, then, David, we read, goes down to the wilderness of Puran. And understand it is there that something starts to change in David. Somewhere in all of that, there was a guy that David and his men had been guarding. A man named Nabal. Nabal, by the way, means fool, idiot, jerk. Jerk's actually probably a really decent rendering of the term. Now, who names their baby jerk? Well, anyways. But you get this idea here that when David had done all of this, it came time for the shearing when the guy holds this great feast, and David just goes, hey, you know, I've got all of these guys. It would be really cool if you could kick off some of that our direction, because we really like to feed our boys, too. And and, and the guy's like, who do you think you are? And David takes it personally, and he wants to go kill the guy. And I wonder, well, how did David shift from not killing Saul to wanting to kill a guy because he won't give him some sheep? And I have to think that when David actually didn't kill Saul, that something inside of him started to go, Boy, check you out. Look at what you just did. We have a term from baseball we call good catch, bad throw syndrome. And the idea of it is that part of the game is you have to catch the ball and then you throw it. But you get so caught up in making such a great catch that you throw it ridiculously because you're so busy complimenting yourself on the first half of it. I imagine the same thing would happen if you're playing football and you've done something really great and you've just dissed the guy and gone around him, but then you kick the ball nowhere near the goal. And the idea is, man, you've just done this amazing thing, but then you blew it in the end because you were so busy relishing in the moment that's already passed now. That's where David is. And he's on this downward slope now. So here he is and he goes to... and, And had this man's wife not intervened, he would have killed the whole household of men. But she comes and offers a sacrifice, a peace offering, interestingly enough, including figs. And then with that, David, after that situation where he really wanted to kill them, winds up in this situation now. So David went from not killing Saul when he could have to almost killing a man that he shouldn't have to where he's at now in 1 Samuel 26. Forgive the lengthy introduction, but it gets us into our text. 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. Now the Ziphites, David had been there before, by the way, a few chapters prior. Chapter 23. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah and said, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hachelah Opposite Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, David's last experience with Saul Saul was like you're right you're right I'm wrong I'm leaving you would think at that point David would think he's safe but at this point Saul's picked up where he left off and you, I'm sure you know people like that maybe you've even been a person like this where you really made these tremendously emotionally driven, absolutely convinced confessions. We call them foxhole confessions before God. And you're like, God, whatever you need, now I'll give you everything. Just get me out of this. And I'm so convinced this is never going to happen again. And then God kind of removes the situation. And then you're back in it as quickly as you started. And and, and really, can I just say, in a challenge of that, there's a huge difference between hating your sin and hating the consequence of it. If what you hate is is the circumstances, then what will happen is the moment they lighten, you'll go back to it. Because the sin was never really the problem in your mind. So what happened is, some guy is into internet pornography, his wife catches him, now of course he's got a real problem on his hands, well he had a real problem before that, we can see that from the outside, but he can't, because now all of a sudden he's convinced himself somehow through doing this regularly, that it's not a big deal, but it certainly is a big deal when she discovers it, and now they're just at each other's throats about it, she looks at him with shame of course, and am I not enough, and she goes through all of the things that a gal goes through under those circumstances, and the guy's kind of figuring it out, and he just starts to pray, God what do I do? could you please heal my marriage can you really fix this situation my wife wants to leave me now you know, and they go through all of these situations and the scenarios in their head and then what happens ultimately is is if really the problem was that the, the circumstances that were generated from it they're going to lighten sooner or later and when they do the temptation is going to go back to return and unless he hates the sin he'll go back to the sin The best thing God could do under such a circumstance is to never remove the circumstance. Because at least it'll be horrible enough to keep you out of it. Well, Saul's in a similar situation, isn't he? Saul now has gone back to pursuing and wanting to kill David. Even though he's openly admitted David deserves to be king. Verse 3 says, And Saul encamped on the hill of Achila, which is opposite of Yeshimun by the road. David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, and David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. David is This tells me something, that David is still sending out spies going, you know, Saul seemed like he was saying, we're good. But I think we better just keep an eye out just in case. And that was a wise move, is what's clear. Now, interesting, by the way, for what it's worth, the place the Ziphites, the people, a Ziphite, by the way, obviously people of Ziph, but the term Ziph means to smelt or to purify metal. I think that's interesting. Because in this betrayal that David is experiencing with a group of people that are grassing him out, strangely enough, it's, been, it's done by a group of people that are their very name says that they're purifying the metal of the thing around them. And understand, this is something we don't like. Because the Bible tells us in First Peter that we are not supposed to be so shocked and freaked out and tried by the trials, the fiery trials that try us. Because they have come that our faith of greater value than gold, which even though tried by fire and purified by fire would be proven genuine. And God says, that's the same thing that happens with your faith. It is proven genuine and results in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. He goes, look, at the same way that you stick metal in the fire and smelting to the top are the impurities that you scrape off and then you beat the thing again, stick it back in the fire, the same way that that happens, he goes, that's what happens when you're put in a trial with your faith. Now understand what a smelter does, because a lot of metals, for instance, gold, is less strong than it is heavy. So when you have something like a ring, the more pure the gold on it, the more likely it is to break. So you have to add less, more rigid, I should say, more rigid metals. Things are going to be a little bit more durable. But then, well, it makes it less valuable in the sight of the the amount of gold that's in it. But it also means that you're not going to go find it on the floor every day if you go and help someone move a couch or ride a bike. But what happens when they want to get back to the pure gold on it? They take all of this, this gold, because it's heavy and the metals that go with it, and they take this thing and they beat it into a flat pan and they throw it into the fire. When they throw it into the fire, all of the impurities start bubbling to the surface and they look nasty. They're just kind of gray and filmy. And then this guy has this smelting tool and it's kind of like a squeegee and he kind of pushes that stuff off to the side, beats it flat some more because it obviously rises when that happens, sticks it back in. the question is, how does he know when the gold is pure? When he pulls it out, And he sees his own reflection then he knows the gold is pure. Because I remind you, it's like a a smoky film that sits on top of it, like ashes from an ashtray. And in the same way, when our faith is alloyed with a lot of things that are Christianese but not Christian, for instance, the power of prayer. I don't mean to offend. The power is not in your prayer, beloved. The power is the only one you're praying to. Because if the power was in your prayer, then you could pray to that wall and it should be okay as long as your prayer was good. But we've seen some pretty wonky, weak, unflowery prayers in Scripture where God did profound things because it was the prayer of where the power was. When Peter was sinking in the water after he had walked on it for a bit, his prayer was, Help! But at a moment like that, he really didn't have a lot of time to make it pretty. If he had actually really gone Shakespearean on the whole situation, he would have been dead before he actually got his first iambic pentameter out. And the reason I say that is, is that some people feel like, I don't pray very good. I'm afraid to pray. Can you pray honestly? Imagine you have someone you really want a relationship with, but they, you call them on the phone and they're like, could you just text me because I don't talk with you very well. I would think the problem was me. They're like, well, I... I don't feel like the words I say would impress you. I'm I'm looking for a relationship. I'm not looking for a performance. And prayer is speaking to God. And if prayer is speaking to God, the more we spend our time preparing for the performance of it, I think we spend an an awful lot less time really just talking with God like we should. And you can see God going, enough with all of this. Can I just hear your heart? But what happens is you can find yourself in a trial and you pray and God just seems like he just calms the storm. And you're like, oh, awesome. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for getting me out of this problem. And then another problem of a very similar nature hits and you pray and it doesn't change. And you don't go to God and go, God, what's the difference? You start asking. Now, how did I pray the first time that I didn't this time? Because I could get back to that first prayer, that first prayer, ooh, that really got me somewhere. But the problem is it wasn't the prayer. It was the one you were praying to. And whether he's asleep on the boat or whether he has to walk on the sea, he still knows how to calm either the storm or the child in it. He knows what he's doing. And there are people that are like, well, God owes me because I fasted this week and I prayed this many times and I did this thing with charity. And man, I was at church twice this week. This should be an awesome week. And then something weird happens, like you step out of here and you get hit by a guy on a bike or a rickshaw. And you think, well, come on, God, I was just at church. Shouldn't that account for something? And he goes, look at your trials that hit you. One of the things they do is they purify your faith. And David is at a place where the people who are really the trial to start this, that handed him over, are the smelters. That's what their term means. I think that's interesting. Oh, for what it's worth. Yeshomon means wilderness. And means dark because the way that it's covered on the top, it tends to look dark. David now was in a place where he knows that Saul's coming after, him. he sent spies, and they're like, yep, Saul is coming. Verse 5. So David arose and he went to the place where Saul encamped. What kind of nut goes, instead of fleeing from the people who are trying to kill you, actually sneaks over to the camp? whether of the of the army that's trying to kill you and this is i mean Saul has tens of thousands of people to choose from and he's picked his 3000 navy seals i mean every one of these guys in essence kind of looks like and you can pick whatever image comes to your head someone from the expendables you know whether it's like you know what's the terry whatever his name is uh guy, anyways, or whether it's like Stallone in his Rambo days. I mean, you pick whoever guy you want to pick there, but he's got 3,000 of those guys and David's going to go, yeah, let's go to that camp. And he's got 600 guys with him. Which one of you thinks if you were part of the 600, yeah, this is a great idea. What are you doing, David? David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp And the people camped all around him. Now, of course, this is the way it works. Saul is in the center of the camp, like any leader would be. Same way that the king is often, you know, when you're in a battle and they're attacking the city, they put him in the deepest part of the inner part of the city so that they have to get through everyone to get to him. It means 3,000 people are encircled around Saul. You want to get to Saul, you're going to have to get through and work that out on your own. But that's going to be at least 500 really crack soldiers. And what I do love is the name of his commander, by the way, did you notice, is Abner. Which, by the way, we also read, then, is the son of Ner. Well, Abner is the conjugation Abba, which means dad, daddy, and Ner. So get this. Ner has a son. And he names him, Ner is my daddy. And God just said, the guy, Ner is my daddy, the son of Ner, I kind of get the idea that that family's a bit a little self-consuming. Anyways, the, this guy is here, and he's encamped, of course. The commander of the army is the closest to Saul. That's, that's your biggest bodyguard. It's interesting, for what it's worth, this is where we kind of meet these guys. Verse 6, David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, we meet Abishai and Yoab here, the son of, uh, and to Abishai, son of Zeruiah, brother of Yoav, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp. So they're obviously camped in something of a lower level and David's looking from a cliff somewhere. He's got a couple guys and he's like, now I I would already be a little concerned, how about you, that David's brought us this close anyways because obviously they're not just going to want to kill David, they're going to want to kill us all. And David's like, hey, who wants to go down there with me. So think about it, guys. Imagine it is, I'm just going to start pulling, I'm going to pull Hugo for a moment and I'm going to pull, you know, for while we're at it, we're going to pull Dennis, and imagine we're in this situation. And I look at you going, I go, who wants to go with me down into the camp? Well, what are you thinking? What do you think we're going to do in the camp? Do you think we're going to go and magic marker their faces? You know, do you think we're going to go and just do goofy things and you know take selfies with us, you know, with these guys? I mean, they're all sleeping at the moment. How many guys do you have to wake up before a fight starts? One. And when one guy wakes up and starts fighting you, then 3,000 guys wake up and fight you. I would imagine the only reason to go down there was because David wanted to finally kill this guy. He's like, oh, we got a second shot at this. I'm so tired of running. Let's just, let's just nail this guy. Wouldn't you think that? Well, it appears that that's what his guys think, too. So, interesting for what it's worth, what we do read, by the way, Abishai, and we're going to find Yoav and Abishai, they're two brothers, and they happen to be, for what it's worth, the name Abishai, Abba again, Abish, Abba means daddy, And Ishai means gift. It means gift of my father. We meet him here with this guy, by the way, Job's brother. We'll meet him as well, at least by mention. We'll read that he's a fleet-footed fellow. And what we're going to ultimately find out is that he's actually these guys are actually related. uh, For what it's worth, we'll get there in another time. So, for the sake of clarity, here's the deal. David's got these guys. Who wants to go with me? Abishai, the fleet-footed one. Does anyone know what a fleet-footed individual means? Fleetfooter is like somebody who runs like a gazelle. That's the idea. You know, you ever see those kind of guys and when they run, I mean, when, you know, on, on Sunday morning I get this opportunity that I go and I have tea now and I watch and I sit at a place where a whole bunch of guys just run by. You know, it's like, it's like joggers town. And most of those guys, I mean, you can see that they're guys that, that either they're really starting out, or well, one way or another, they're really carrying a lot more than they, than they probably really want to. And so you could just see a man, and they're just, they're just kind of the feet of never really leave the ground. They're just like, oh, you know, they're just dripping everywhere. And I, mean, I did watch a guy like that that actually started a block before me, and he was done before he got to me. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, Lord, just give this guy endurance. You know, and then, then then every once in a while you see the guys and they're like kind of jogging together. We've got kind of our jogging club, you know, I was like, well, it was a lovely day to jog. It's a great day. To I love the fact that it's sort of raining. You know, and they're kind of jogging by. And every once in a while you watch that kind of guy and he looks like a baby goat. They're like, doing 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 you know, they like barely touch the ground. And I'm like, that's a fleet footed fellow. That's the kind of guy that, you know, you know that he can actually do a 90 degree turn without really having to tell you about it ahead of time. And I'm sure that when you play things like football, those are the guys you got to look out for the most because they're just way too quick and they just move in ways that aren't very human. Well, that's kind of the Abishai character, and we're going to learn, by the way, that's actually his downfall uh, to come. But he looks and he's like, right, "You guys, who wants to go with me?" And I imagine I, I would imagine David's whispering, "What would you think?" And everyone's just you know, snoring down there. He's like, "All right, you guys." Abishai's like, yeah, man, I'll go. I'm like, oh, gazelle man, perfect idea. You go with me. Verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with a spear stuck in his hand, I'm sorry, stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and all the people lay around him. Now, don't miss this. Imagine David looking at Abishai and going, Man, let me tell you about this spear. This thing's been chucked at my head twice, and we really need to get just get rid of this thing. Abishai says to David, "God has delivered your enemies into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please notice the please. He's being polite about this murder. Please let me strike him at once with the spear. Now he's going to kill Saul with his own spear. You get that right." to the earth and I will not have to strike him a second time. Hey, I can do this in one take. Give me just, give me one second, Please, boss. Please. I mean, it's right there. Bada boom. Bada bing. You know, it's going to be simple. I'll pick the thing up. Walk. He's done. And, we'll, and I'll fleet foot. I remind you, fleet foot's going to probably be out of there while David's still running with the 3,000 men on top of him. You know, he's like, yeah, we'll be gone. We're just bada boom. Boom. We're gone. And, and now, would that be tempting for you as David? Please hear me. What David has in front of him at this moment is an easy way out. And because he has an easy way out, it's got to be tempting. Why do so many people get abortions? It's the easy way out. It really isn't. But it sure is marketed that way. And I'm not here to diss where you've come from if that's your background. But as a guy, I know that that's never going to... I mean, I don't have to face that. I recognize that. But the question is, have I ever faced a life-altering decision and, and just been tempted to take the easy way out? Let me warn you. If you're an easy way out person, you will never really represent Christ like you should. Because Jesus was never an easy way out guy I mean he starts his ministry getting tempted after 40 days of not eating what would be the easy way out and then he recruits a bunch of guys that are clearly boneheads what would be the easy way out and he has the ability at any moment to transform anything think about how many times Jesus ever used his power in any form of judgmental manner I can only think of the fig tree I mean, all the times people came after him, when he was arrested, when they said, come down off the cross, what would be the easy way out? When he was kneeling in the garden and saying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from before me, but not my will, yours be done. What would have been the easy way out? And this is what it tells us again in 1 Peter 2, for to this you were called, that Christ suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. by the way we're going to read from that point on in 1 Peter 2 that when he was abused he didn't abuse in return and when he was maligned he didn't trash talk loose paraphrase but instead he committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins on the tree because we all like sheep have gone astray but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all Jesus didn't take the hard way because it was hard he took the hard way because it was right And we live in a culture, I want to warn you, we live in a culture where everything says take the easy way. Do as little as you have to do. And we're told in Scripture, no matter what you do, whether it's at work or play, do it with all your heart, giving glory to the name of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, giving Jesus' name as well, give Him the glory so that people know, why are you working so hard? Why are you doing this like this? You say, because I represent the one who never took the easy way out. And if you're an easy way out, guy, this story probably would look a lot different right now. I feel like, Because let's face it, David's probably been running over a decade. This, I mean, when does it you finally go, I am so tired of running. I'm so tired of being... How did I become the bad guy? What did I do to become the bad guy? I mean, I, you know, I took down Goliath when, and nobody else would fight him. How did I become the bad guy for that? Then I went with the army and fought the Philistines, and I got a greater victory than anyone else. How did I become the bad guy for that? And then I went and I served Saul in all of this before and even after that. How did I become the bad guy? And then Saul gave me his daughter. How did I become the bad guy in that? What did I do to be the bad guy? But for ten plus years, for over a decade, I've been running because somehow I'm the bad guy. And I became the bad guy the moment God put his anointing on me. The moment that God put a calling on me, now I'm the bad guy? Now, which one of you in a moment like that be, God, if I knew it was going to be this, I don't know if I would have said yes to the whole cool oily thing that you did in front of my brothers. If I really knew that this is what the calling was going to look like. But David can't see the chapters we could read. We have the luxury of reading ahead of this. David's stuck in the moment. And when you're stuck in the moment like this, let's face it, this decision, it may take place in the split of a second, but it seems like years of deliberation have gone into it. Because David has inched and inched away, and let me me warn you, it all revolves around one thing, and that's entitlement. The moment you think you are entitled, the moment you think, hey, let me just say, I deserve, this is about me, the moment you go there, you are setting yourself up for taking the easy way out, because you're entitled to the easy way out then. And the easy way out is seldom where the fruitful ministry is. You know that, because someone calls you and they're like, you know, I really need to talk right now. And you know that you've wanted them to come to know the Lord, but at that moment it's just flat out, flat out inconvenient. And I just, I don't want to talk right now. I don't want to give like I have to in a moment like this. And you're like, well, I have a headache. I have an appointment. I'm going to type it into my calendar right now, just so in case you look. You know, I mean, the things we can say. Oh, I think I hear my mother calling me. Oh, wait a minute, I have another call. Oh, wait a minute, because it's the easy way out. But for ten plus years, you've been running, and to be honest. It all revolves around the guy that is sleeping right at your feet right now and the murder weapon, the weapon to kill him, his own one. That, by the way, I remind you, twice you've had to dodge because he's tried to kill you with it, is right next to him. He's got the pistol right next to you and the thing is cocked and all you have to do is point it. And you've got, and here's the best part David doesn't even have to do it. David actually has a guy next to him that's like, Hey, boss, I understand you said you don't want to get your hands dirty. You want to be clean before God? No problem, boss. I'll take care of it for you. You could stand before God and go, I didn't kill them,' You know, and like, hey, I didn't do it. You know, meanwhile, don't worry about it. If you want, you can even, don't even listen to him from this point on. Just look the other way. Hey, look at that bird. I'll grab the thing. I mean, think about how easy it would be to appease your conscience at a moment like that. And if David just jumped, I think Saul would have been dead. But see, when you don't give God space to actually work it out, and you take the matter in your own hand, you'll never be able to have the privilege of telling everyone else later in life how God did it. And I guarantee you, that's where David is. So David says to Abishai in verse 9, don't destroy him. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, wait a minute. Isn't this guy guilty? He's trying to kill you. I mean, he isn't supposed to be king. You're supposed to be king. But what David knew is the one who gave me this position, the one who took it from him, it's his job to move to take care of the situation. And look, at we love to control and we love to step in and think, we, if we could just, we'll fix, we'll fix it. These people are idiots. If, if they just give me a chance, I'll take over and I'll fix you. Don't worry. But in the end of it all, what David realizes is, if this was God's calling, it's got to be God's way to do it. We say if it's God's will, it's God's bill. Or if it's God's vision or God's mission, it's God's provision. God's got to be the one to provide. I can't, I can't force God's hand in this. Because I don't, I, I I don't want to be the guy written in history as that guy. If you look around this room, if you come here more than once, and maybe for for some of us, once would be enough, you're going to be part of someone's testimony. What part are you going to be? And you may not get a second chance. This is David's second chance to do right, and he did right the first time. Would you want to be the part of someone's testimony that actually said, "Then I ran into Bruno, and let me tell you what happened. Then I ran into Haley, and oh, I'm telling you, everything changed." the moment that Daniel started sharing with me. And for some of you, you can share that testimony. You can say, I remember, man. My life was going this way that I sat down and and at braving it all. They didn't take the easy way. They told me what was hard for them to tell me because, to be honest, they just knew it was right. And at the moment, I may not have been happy about it. But because of that moment, and that becomes a part of this person's testimony, and let's face it, you can't take that away. Once you're part of that testimony, you're there. You're written in the book. David's like, I'm not going to be that part of this, of this story, the guy that killed Saul. Not unless God tells me to, and he hasn't. Verse 10, David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, well, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go out to battle and perish. So I could see that David's already probably fantasized a few of these. But you get the idea. He's like, look at Clearly, God knows how to kill the guy. God's not not limited on how to kill someone. And he hasn't told me to do it so clearly. I'm not the man for this. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Well, wait a minute, but he's a sinner. Well, what human being isn't? But please, let's do this. Take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let's go. Imagine, you came down there to kill me thinking, yeah, David, let's finally kill him. And then you get down there and David's like, hey, by the way, Dennis, grab his... Grab his thermos, grab his flask. And Daniel, get his spear. Let's go and run with it. We came here to steal his stuff. Imagine it's like, yeah, this guy's been trying to kill you. You've been trying to kill you. And all of a sudden he's sleeping out there right in front of Covent Garden Station. And you know, like, Well, we're fine, let's go over there, we're finally gonna go and we're gonna approach him. Hey Bruno, steal his iPhone. That'll show him. I mean, imagine what that would be like. You know? So, two things. What are the two things they took? Spear and jug of water. Don't miss that. So David took the spear and the jug of water from, by Saul's head and they got away. No man saw it or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. <coughs> Beautiful. The last time a deep sleep had fallen on anyone was when God confirmed by the way his... Uh, covenant in Genesis 15, for what it's worth. Now, David went over to the other side, stood on the top of the hill from afar, a great distance between, be, between them. You would imagine David would want to make sure with 3,000 navy seals, he'd want some distance between them. And David called out, I imagine quite loud now, to all the people and to Abner, the son of Ner. Now notice, he's speaking to Abner. And he says, Do you not answer, Abner? Good morning! Abner answered and he said, Who are you calling out to The king? Who did David speak to? Abner. So where is Abner actually saying it's the king? I think that's interesting. Verse 15, David said to Abner, Are you, aren't you a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why have you then not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy you. Notice one of the people, because there were two that went in, David was the other, and he's like, I just want you to know, me and a killer came in there, and the guy really wanted to kill you. David says, listen, one of us, one of you, came in to destroy the, your lord, the king. This thing that you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see the king's spear? See the king's spear and the water jug, the jug of water that was by his head. Man, how would you feel at this moment if you were Abner, son of Ner? Ner is my dad. Son of Nur. How would you feel if you were Saul looking at him going, uh, didn't anyone have the night shift tonight? Shouldn't somebody have been guarding at this point? Saul is so bent on destroying David that he actually doesn't even think that he's going to be attacked himself. So Saul knew David's voice and he says, Isn't that your voice, my son David? This is creepy. Because he just, you know, I'm like, you know, hey there, little buddy. Ah, did I try to kill you again? oh man, rough day, have a lolly. Well, David David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my Lord, the King, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord had stirred you up against me, well then let him accept an offering. But if it's the children of men, well, then may they be cursed before the Lord. Now, don't miss this statement. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, has anyone said that to David? The only one that I can imagine saying saying this to David is the enemy himself. He's like, look it, if this is God, if this is God punishing me, well then let him, I know that God is open to a sacrifice that's humble and contrite and genuinely repentant. I know God would receive that. If God really is doing this to correct my behavior, I'm glad to let him correct my behavior. But if this is really about somebody really trying to drive me out of Israel to tell me to go serve another God, well then let him be cursed. And the reason I say that is, David will be David will leave this land in the next chapter spoiler alert and in that David is going to go to a place that's of Saul and Israel's enemies and can you smell it here in this text somewhere in all of this David stopped just saying hey I'm innocent why are you trying to kill me I could have killed you again but I didn't and now he's like you guys are driving you know it's your fault I'm going to I just want you to know if I backslide now it's on you wasn't that what David's saying I mean, think about leaving the country and serving other gods. Could there be more of a backslide than that? It's like, I just want you to know at this point, I could have killed you twice and I didn't. And if this is about you guys, look at you, we need to know if I'm leaving here and I'm going to go to a place, I'm clear, I'm going to, you know, if I go clubbing and I get not, I'm just get completely just on my face tonight. I just want you to know I am not responsible for it. It's on your head. That's what David's saying, isn't he? Well, the moment you actually feel entitled to do something, and have you ever been there? Well, you—I bet you have. I have. I'll be honest. I'll be at least godly enough to be honest about it. Um, you know, it's like well, you're just like you know what? I just feel like doing something rotten right now. I just feel like doing something stupid, and, and it's like, and then I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, because I'm pastor, I you know, stop there. But you know, it's like. You know, well, you just, you get this, like, smoke in your spirit, and you're just like, eh, eh, eh you know? Like, all of a sudden, like, a moment, a moment ago, you were like Father Christmas, and then you turn into the Grinch, you know? And now you're like, eh, I just want to, like, steal your toys and burn them, you know? And yeah. I've heard stories. I have nothing to do with that. You know, and, and it's like, but you know what? And just and the moment you're like, you know what? And if I do that, it's your fault, then all of a sudden, you know what the enemy just said is, you could go and do whatever you want, and who could blame you for it? Think that out. I mean, that would be like someone saying, you know, by the way, while you're at it, you know, I think you've had a bad day. Why don't you take that credit card of yours and max it out on whatever you want. And because you've had a bad day, you don't have to pay for it. Yeah, go ahead and tell that to the people when you're done. When the tax collectors call you and they always try to sound like they're knuckle breakers from New York or something. And you're like, no, you don't understand. I was having a rotten day and I thought if I could just go and, you know, and go somewhere on Regents and pick up something really nice, you know, some kind of Dolce & Gabbana thing. I am sure that I'd feel better. Did you feel better? Yeah, I felt better for it. Well, you better feel better for it because that 600 pound shirt is going to cost you 600 pounds. You know, and it's like somewhere in it, the excuse just doesn't hold up. Then they want to take you to court, and then you see a court, and you're like, "Well, you don't understand. I had a bad day." And you could see the judge going, "Oh, was it really that bad of a day? Well, you had a bad day. Bought yourself a shirt. I mean, it's like, in, don't miss the fact that it just doesn't work. But at that moment, you think it does. Now you know it won't work in the court of law, but somehow you think it will with God. You know, God." You could have given me a better t- day today. And if you gave me a better day, I wouldn't be about to do what I'm about to do. And can I say again, you realize what happened? This is the second step to taking the easy way out. Sin is the easy way out. And the reason sin's the easy way out is it's what your body wants to do anyways. I mean, holding your tongue when you know you could say something that's just going to be like, Bam! In your face! You know that holding your tongue in a moment like that is more than just trying to be humble. In some cases, it is a complete act of discipline. But what if tonight, from this point on, God etched into our souls, do the right thing? And it's probably the hard thing, but do the right thing. And we challenge each other to that. Could you imagine? What our private, quiet times would really be like, what our browsing records would look like, when we think we don't have time for God's Word, but we are really keen on some episodes of this and that, we need to make sure we catch up on. We then we think somehow after all that I'll start reading God's Word, and God says, "Look, do the right thing. It's probably the hard thing, but do the right thing. Do the right thing the way that you treat your spouse. Do the right thing about committing to a fellowship." You know, it talks about being planted in the house of the Lord, not going to visit him on holidays. And we live in a culture here that really just doesn't commit to anything unless it serves them. Well, verse 20, and we're almost done now. So now, don't let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Saul's response, another one of those foxhole confession moments. I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool. And Eric seniorly, By the way, for what it's worth, it's the first time God gives us the word fool in Scripture. I find that interesting. David answered and he said, Here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's missing? The water. Did you guys catch that? David's like, remember, he's like, hey, by the way, I took these things. Here's the spirit, come and get it. And I wonder at this point, David's like, well, you know, you've come after me twice. I think that's worth some water. And the only reason I say that is you kind of see where David's going. The easiest way to fall is just focus on yourself. Stare at yourself and see how well you walk. Verse 23. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let life, my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all my tribulation, all my troubles. You know, after all of this, may the Lord give me no trouble for the rest of my life. (laughs) i paid my dues. should be enough. Saul says to David, as we end this, May you be blessed, my son David. And then this crazy statement. You shall both do great things and also prevail. Don't miss that. If you do great things, wouldn't you think you prevailed? Saul is declaring that David will not only do great things but even after doing great things he'll still be a decent guy he'll still be a victorious person sometimes the worst thing that can happen with people is they actually get somewhere I've watched really, really humble, beautiful Christian musicians turn into crazy maniacs it's kind of redundant, I get that because somewhere in it they got a little bit of success and it became all about them It's amazing what that does to people. I've seen them with pastors. And Saul looks and he goes, you know, the way that you behaved here today clearly shows me you will not only achieve great things, but they will not be your downfall. That's the point. Well, what's interesting is what Saul is not seeing is David's already falling. And and because David actually thought he has achieved something. He hadn't killed Saul twice. Check out how bad he is. And David is on his way out now as a result of it. And Saul doesn't see it. But God does. So David went his way, or went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Look, at as we go to prayer, <clears throat> to close this up, let me, we have to bring this home. What areas of your life right now are you living on the easy way? And you know what? The easiest way to talk you out is when the Holy Spirit starts saying, Yeah, this is, this is a little too easy, don't you think? No, look, don't make something difficult if it's simple. But you kind of know this, this is all that's expected and this isn't the extra mile or any of that. You're just going to do it just as much as, as a pass-fail. And the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, don't you think we should really put in a little bit more than this? And you say, but I deserve and you get to that entitlement stage. And the moment you do that, let's face it, we play that with our, with our personal time with God, our prayer time, our time in His Word. We do that in regards to our commitment to being in fellowship. We do that in regards to the way that we behave around those around us. We do that in regards to the way that we feel that we should be testifying when we're not. We say, yeah, but... And I've learned this, if you're really willing to listen to the Lord, He'll give you time to rest. He will replenish you and strengthen you, but He also will have you do things you couldn't possibly ever do unless you really listened to Him because you would have stopped a long time ago. But I want to warn you, what David did in all of this is these were the steps he took to backslide. If you're driving... 40 miles an hour and you throw that car into reverse, you're going to blow the transmission. It can't just go forward and backward like that. And if it did, you'd go through the window and it would be bad for everyone. You have to slow the car down. And once you slow the car down to a stop, you go backwards and seldom do people know it, unless you're on the bus I rode on this morning where I think he actually went both directions at the same time. And the enemy knows that. It's just hard to see that you're actually... Preparing to go backwards when you're slowing down and you shouldn't. Because there was a time, man, where the name of Jesus made your heart skip a beat and all you wanted to do was praise Him. And you could blame it on and blame it on and blame it on. But the bottom line is the one thing that really changed was you. David's situation has not changed. But God is actually giving him an opportunity to record him as a hero here. And David's gotten a little too much look at himself to really be the hero that God wants him to be at, at this moment. And I remind you, God recruited him because he was a man after his own heart. But let me say again to conclude this. My Savior loves you so much that he made every hard choice he had to that was right. Including coming to earth as a baby, being tired and thirsty and sick more than likely having more than one case where he had to get sick and have diarrhea or whatever. I mean, he was a human being. He had to suffer things that God never has to experience in heaven. Bad shawarma. That'll do it to anyone. He got irritated. He was grumpy. He didn't sleep like he wanted to. And then he surrounded himself with guys that were constantly in in need of maintenance, like us guys that he always had to jump in front of before they stab someone or call down fire he was tempted in every way yet without sin and he willingly offered himself at the cross it was not just the hard way it was the hardest way because it was the only right way And he did that because he loves you and he wanted to pay for all your sins and then rose again just like God promised in Scripture. And I need to ask you, as Ben, so I'm not guilty of my own polemic on this, have you said yes to that gift of Jesus Christ? I'm not asked if you've gone to church. I could walk into McDonald's. It doesn't make me a hamburger. Which would be good because if I became a hamburger, I'd be very much in danger around Hugo. But you can walk into a church. It doesn't make you a Christian. You either accept the gift of Jesus Christ or not. You can go and go to a wedding and it doesn't make you married. Most of the people who go to the wedding don't wind up getting married there. At least that day. But today I say, you have a choice to make. If you said yes to Jesus Christ, then let's pray a dangerous prayer tonight. Let's pray, God, give me the chutzpah, the drive to do the right thing it probably is the hard thing, but to do the right thing. And surround me with other people who want to do the right thing. Even when it's the hardest thing, that they'll still want to do the right thing. So they'll take the high road in what they say. They'll do the, take the high road in what they do. They'll take the high road about their commitments. They'll take the high road about the way they deal with their relationships. They say no to gossip and they say yes to prayer. They say no to vindication and they say yes to intercession. Because that's what my Savior did. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of this time. I want to thank you, Lord, that you chose the hard thing because somehow in your divine sight we were worth it. We were the joy set before you that caused you to endure the cross and scorn and shame. And tonight, here in this room, we have this challenge. I mean, I don't think that there's any of us that have had situation after situation for a decade that has caused us to really feel like we have a right to vindicate like David would have in the situation we read tonight, if we're going to be honest. We've certainly had situations that have been enduring and have, cost, that have spanned time and therefore weird on our faith and weird on our witness But, if you could show us a man who for this moment had the opportunity but didn't, but then we'll actually, good catch but bad throw. Then I pray that tonight you give us a life driven to follow you, to do the right thing, even when it's the hardest thing, but to do the right thing because your Holy Spirit will give us the power that is necessary to do the right thing. To say no when we need to say no. To stand up and speak when we need to speak. To tell the truth when everyone else isn't. Make us people who are known for loving you the right way. And being the fellowship that loves each other the right way. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're not sure you've ever said yes to Jesus, or you know you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, if you agree, if you really say, you know what, I want to say yes to that tonight, then I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer then tonight. And here's the prayer God in heaven. I'm a sinner like all men are sinners. I'm a sinner. But you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay my price because you love me and you want me. And that way you could punish all my crimes in my heart without having to send me to hell. And he paid that price, died on the cross, was buried just like scripture promised, and rose again on the third day. And in doing so, he offers me now a brand new life. A life that lets him be the architect of my reinvention. The one that transforms me and makes me into your image. And if all you're asking for is my yes, tonight I make the choice and say yes. Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. Reinvent me and make me a person who looks and acts and feels like you do. As I hand myself now to you, do your masterwork, I pray. I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say tonight, Amen. Oh God, you've heard our prayer. Now, do your work we have given you permission, come on in and amaze us. Thank you for the privilege of this night, Lord, for the honor to be in your word, and for the beautiful, awesome gift of assembling like this. Now cement those convictions. Make us men and women who do the right, no matter how hard. In Jesus' name, amen.